to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of those in the seats in front of you. Uh, passage this morning in those is on page 2. As we continue our verse-by-verse look at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the opening chapters of the Bible, the opening events of human history. And if you are physically able, I'd ask you to stand with me now as I read for us, beginning in verse 4 and ending in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 17. Well, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go with me to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You may be seated. Our God is a covenantal God. When we go to the Bible to learn about how our God has related to man, we find that time and time again He has done so through covenants. Everybody say covenant. Now put very simply, the covenants of the Bible are declarations of God, I'm speaking of covenants, dealing with God, are declarations of God in which He reveals Himself to a person or persons and makes a promise to them about how He is going to relate to them. Consider Noah. After Noah and his family and all the animals come out of the ark, God makes a promise to Noah and to Noah's offspring and even to the animals about how he as God is going to relate to them. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Think of Abraham. He was probably a pagan a moon worshiper, when God broke into his life, God revealed himself to Abraham, not because Abraham was seeking him, but because God had chosen to make Abraham his child. 
And God established a covenant with Abraham, declaring to Abraham the terms of their relationship. And what wonderful terms they were. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to give to your descendants an area of land that I have set apart for them. They shall be my special people. I will be their God. And through them, I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham, all I want you to do is to trust my word. What a covenant. Think of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God reveals Himself to them at the mountain and speaks to them as a nation. He says, I am the God who brought you out of slavery to the Egyptians. I am the God who will take you to the promised land and I establish a covenant with you. He constituted them as a nation, giving them a law. And He said as long as they would be faithful to that law, they would be His special nation. And a special presence would be among them. And a special protection would be around them. But if they forsook that law and chose to have other gods instead of Him, they would lose His special blessings and receive judgment instead. We could also think of King David and God's covenant with him over and over and over again. God revealing Himself to a person or persons and saying, I have chosen to have a relationship with you and here are the terms of the relationship. That's what a covenant is. Over and over again, God has related to people by giving them a promise and calling them to trust that promise. If they trust it and walk in accordance with that promise, they receive blessing. If they doubt His Word and walk differently or out of step with that promise, then they receive judgment. And every covenant that God has ever made, He has been asking one question. Will you trust Me? Well, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of a new covenant. And this covenant was established through Jesus Christ. As He held the cup of wine before His disciples, He told them, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. In Jesus, God revealed Himself to man in a way that He had never revealed Himself before. In Jesus, we saw not only the power and the wisdom of God, but we see His love. We see His humility. We see even His meekness. And God declared Jesus to be His Son and our King. He made a new covenant. And the terms of the covenant were this. To those who will bow to His Son and trust His Son, they will receive eternal abundant life. Their sins will be forgiven. The Holy Spirit will be given to them. And God will be their Father. And they will be His children. All we have to do is trust His Son as our King and our Savior. But those who refuse this covenant, who will not believe what God has said, who will not bow to Jesus as His Son, will remain outside of the covenant and are headed for righteous judgment. 
The question I want to begin with this morning is this. Are you a member of the New Covenant community? Are you a partaker of the New Covenant? Have you believed God's promise that if you would call on the name of His Son, Jesus, your sins will be forgiven? Does the Holy Spirit live in your heart? Are you going to heaven? Every person in this room is either inside the covenant or outside the covenant. Where do you stand? Of course, the new covenant was new because it was established when Christ came. But the principles of the new covenant had been true since the fall of man. Anyone who has trusted in the true God, humbling themselves before Him, believing His Word, will have their sins forgiven and has become His child. We call this the covenant of grace. And it was just as much in effect as the Old Testament as it is now in the New. Though in the New, we learn of the Messiah that makes it possible. So I ask you, Are you in the covenant of grace? I can ask you if you're in the covenant of grace. I can ask you if you're in the new covenant. I'm asking you the same thing. Have you trusted in God through Jesus Christ and been made His child? Well, before there was a covenant of grace, before there was a new covenant, there was a covenant of works. And that's what we see established here with Adam in Genesis 2. This first ever covenant that God made with man was established here at the beginning and is still in effect today. Now wait a minute, you say. There is no covenant in Genesis 2. Sure, God tells Adam that if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will die. And sure, it is implied that if he obeys, he will be blessed. But there is no mention of the word covenant in Genesis 2. And that is true. You will not find the word covenant in this chapter. But this is still a covenant. This is still God revealing Himself to man and making a promise about how He is going to relate to man. If Adam obeys, God will relate to him with the blessing of life. But if Adam disobeys, God will relate to him with the judgment of death. You don't have to take my word for it. The Bible does later look back to Genesis 2 and call this a covenant. You can write these verses down, look them down when you get home, look them up. Uh, Hosea 6, 7 and Isaiah 24, 4 through 5. Both of these passages look back to Genesis 2 and describe the fall of man as the breaking of a covenant. So what was this covenant? And what does the Bible teach about it? First, we need to see that this covenant like the others I've already mentioned, was divinely imposed. Are you with me, church? It is not as if God and Adam sat down at a table together and began haggling out the terms of their relationship. 
Nor is it as if Adam came to God and said, God, let me tell you how I want our relationship to be. No. God chose to reveal himself to Adam, and he declared to Adam what their relationship would be. And Adam is immediately bound by what God declares. God does not ask Adam if these terms are okay with him. It was sheer mercy that God revealed himself to Adam in the first place. Today there are many who think that they can stipulate to God what their relationship with him will be like. And perhaps some of you in here have thought that way. Maybe you've been telling God, God, look, here's what I've done. See how I've been faithful at coming to church. See how I've been faithful in doing these good works. Therefore, God, you must accept me. Or maybe you've been telling God, God, you cannot be unfair. You cannot be unjust. Lately, God, you've been working out things differently than I want them to be. God, I've been faithful to you. I demand you give me what I want. Friends, we have no right to stipulate to God what our relationship with Him will be. The pot does not tell the potter what to do. And if you think that you can tell God how He must relate to you, you are not dealing with reality, but living in an arrogant and self-centered, imaginary, fairy tale world. Imagine Jonathan, my five-year-old son, coming to me and saying, Daddy, here's what our relationship is going to be like. Does he have any right to do that? Of course not. Of course not. I am the father in the relationship. He is the son. He is five years old, which means he does not have the knowledge that his dad has, nor the wisdom that his father has, the understanding or the authority. And so it is with us and God. He made us, and he put us in this world, and now he has the right to say to us, as long as you live in my universe, here are the rules. That's his right as sovereign God. Now why am I acting as if God made this covenant with us. After all, it's with Adam that he makes the covenant. So why am I speaking as if, as if it's a covenant with us? Why do I believe that? Well, I believe that because I think the Bible makes clear that when Adam received this word from God, he received it as the federal head of the human race. Adam stood for us in the garden. At the end of World War I, when Woodrow Wilson signed the Treaty of Versailles to make peace with Germany, it was the whole United States that signed with him. He put his signature there, but it wasn't the truth that now President Wilson was at peace with Germany. No. It was that all of America was now at peace with Germany. In that moment, he stood as our representative, our federal head. Well, in the garden, when Adam received this covenant, it was not just Adam who received it, but all humanity. Check Romans 5. Remember, the name Adam means man. Adam was man 
receiving this covenant. He stood for man, male and female, in receiving this covenant. Now, when you hear me say that God made man, and then that God imposed this covenant on us, you might begin to have negative thoughts about God. You might begin to think of God the way many others do, as the cosmic killjoy who just loves to say no and to make our lives miserable. Look at that God. He puts Adam in a garden, and the first thing he does is start giving him rules of what he can't do. It's the way some people look at God. Yet, friends, when we look at the terms of this covenant that God imposed on Adam, we see and can marvel at how absolutely magnificent they were. These were wonderful terms. God loved Adam and blessed him with a covenant that was for his good and would have secured his eternal life forever. As I've already mentioned, there were two parts to the covenant. If Adam would obey God, he would have the blessing of life. If he would not obey God, he would lose that blessing and have death instead. Look with me a little more closely at exactly how Adam was supposed to obey. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Stop. Don't jump immediately to verse 17 and the prohibition to not eat from one tree. Note first, verse 16. What is God saying there? Adam, enjoy my gifts to you. The first part of the covenant of works is, Adam, look at this blessed world I've given you and feast on it and enjoy it. There is a force to this verse. The ESV translates it using the word surely. You may surely eat of every tree. Other uh, translations use the word freely, but there really is no good English way to get the point across. The point is that God is saying to Adam, Adam, I want you to enjoy all that I've given you. I want you to receive all of this as a gift. I want you to enjoy paradise. Eat the fruit of the trees, drink from the river, play with the animals, enjoy the wife I'm going to give to you. All the earth was glorious at this time, but the garden was particularly beautiful and pleasing to the eyes and filled with good things. And God does not step in to keep Adam from pleasure. He calls Adam to pursue it. To enjoy all these gifts from his hands. And all of it is to be received as a gift from God's good hand, as an expression of God's love. If you think of God as a killjoy, as someone who doesn't want you to know joy, you do not know God. Because God is the source of all true joy. Amen? He is happy in and of Himself, he is filled with delight in his own character and his holy delight in himself overflows and you and I exist because that is true. The problem is not that God doesn't want us to have joy. The problem is that we often want to have joy apart from God. And that's a touch of what verse 17 is really all about and getting at. Verse 17, he already said in verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Enjoy the garden. Verse 17, but. 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden to remind Adam that he was not God. For God alone has full knowledge of God, good and evil. God alone is infinitely wise. Now it is good to have wisdom. It is good to desire wisdom. Yet the Bible tells us that we are to gain our knowledge of good and evil by fearing God. We are to trust Him, learn from Him, let God teach us these things. But this tree was placed in the garden as a test. Would Adam trust God to guide him and teach him? Would Adam be satisfied with all the blessings God had given him, including the blessing of fellowshipping with God himself? Or would Adam try and make himself autonomous? Would he try and take the fruit that would make him wise apart from God? Would Adam try and make himself like God apart from God? Friends, we who are Christians are being taught by the Holy Spirit to know good from evil, aren't we? We are being taught wisdom by the Holy Spirit today. And in heaven, we will bear God's image in many ways, and part of that will be that we will bear the marks of wisdom and knowledge. I do not know that we will have infinite knowledge in heaven. I do not know that we will have infinite wisdom the way God does in heaven, but we will have knowledge. We will have wisdom. And my guess is that if Adam had passed this test, if he had trusted in God rather than trying to take it for himself, God would have led him into the knowledge of good and evil. God would have led him into wisdom. He would have received those blessings. But the issue was whether or not he would trust God for wisdom or whether he would seek it apart from God. Indeed, in opposition to God. Every blessing of the garden was there for Adam to enjoy, but there was one tree that he was not to eat from. What if Adam had passed this test? Many theologians believe, and I think rightly, that if Adam had gone a set length of time and resisted the serpent and exiled the serpent out of the garden as he should have done, rather than listening to the serpent who had deceived his wife, had he trusted in God, God would have allowed Adam to take from that other tree, the tree of life. Genesis 3 verse 22 makes clear that this tree would have given Adam eternal life. The Proverbs speak again and again about the tree of life as a picture of wisdom. Adam was created with the ability to obey or disobey. But God had granted him to had God granted him to take from the tree of life, it seems like he would have been granted that wisdom that would have kept him from ever disobeying. See, that's the difference between our future in heaven and Adam in the garden. In heaven, there will never be any chance that you will sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will have fully taught you wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be able to see God is better than anything Satan or anything else can offer. Adam, in the garden, still had capability of sinning and losing his blessings. Why? Because he had not yet learned wisdom. 
Well, had Adam passed the test, we believe God would have given Adam that. He would have been confirmed in his holiness and would have lived forever. Yet as you know, Adam failed the test. He did not continue to trust the God who had blessed him so greatly, but rather he tried to grasp for the only thing that God had kept from him. And according to the terms of the covenant, Adam chose death. Physical death would come, and spiritual death was immediate. Adam and Eve lost paradise. They lost the special presence of God. They lost the promise of God's blessings. And his own soul, Adam's own soul, became wicked and opposed to God. And it's so much worse than that. Because when Adam sinned, we sinned. Humanity sinned. Our individualistic culture does not like this. But the fact is, when our federal head rebelled against God, we rebelled against God. We are born a part of a race at war with God. We do not love God, we do not seek God, but rather we trample His commands and deny that He is worthy of our love and obedience. That is you, naturally, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's me. We are born dead to God, because when Adam died, we died. You ready for the good news? But oh, the mercy of God. Friends, the opposite of paradise is not earth, but hell. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had every right to kick them not just out of the garden, but straight into his judgment. All humanity could have been cast immediately into hell. That's what we deserve. But that's not what God did. He removed them from paradise. But he allowed them to live on the earth for many more years. And he allowed their children to live. And their children's children. And their children's children's children. So that we live. Why? God has chosen to have mercy. And to give every human being an opportunity to repent. He declared to Adam and Eve, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, He declared to Adam and Eve that a Messiah was going to come who would reconcile them back to God. And therefore, every person who wanted to come back into the blessings of God could if they will simply repent and be saved. And Adam and Eve did this. They trusted in the promise of God, this promise of salvation through faith and repentance, this promise we call the covenant of grace. Friends, we have acted so wickedly towards our God and God in return has acted towards us with goodness and mercy and patience. He is a God of second chances. Adam and Eve, you blew it and you deserve eternal damnation. But I'm going to give you another chance. How? God, how can you do that? They sinned against your holiness. If you are good and just, you must condemn them. How can you do this? Answer, 
you're right. There's a price that must be paid. But I'm going to send a, a Messiah, my son, to bear that price. Jesus was the second Adam. Adam failed the test. Jesus passed it. For 33 years, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. And not in a garden filled with the blessings of God everywhere, but surrounded by men who hated Him. Surrounded by men who opposed Him. Surrounded by men who were working to see Him murdered. Jesus still remained faithful. Despite temptations from His human flesh. Despite temptations from the world around Him. Despite temptations from Satan. Jesus did what Adam did not do. He obeyed. The serpent was able to talk Eve into falling. And her influence was enough to undo Adam. Yet three times that same serpent, Satan, came against Jesus in the wilderness. And three times he tried to get Jesus to fall. Three times he enticed Jesus using physical enticement and worldly enticement, trying to get him to disobey his God. And every time Jesus passed the test, even when it meant death on a cross, Jesus obeyed. Now, we are all connected to Adam, the federal head of the human race. And his fall was our fall. But Jesus is a federal head too. The head of his church. And his victory is the victory of everyone connected to him. God connects people to Jesus and causes them to share in Jesus' victory by putting the Spirit of Jesus within them, causing to repent and believe and become holy. In other words, if you are a Christian, you used to have Adam as your head and his fall was your fall, but you now have Christ as your head and his victory is your victory, which is why God can look at you and call you righteous. Friends, this is the basis of your salvation. We are connected to Adam through the blood in our veins and because we are connected to Adam through the blood in our veins, your body is going to die. But if your soul has been born again and is connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit, then your soul will never die because Christ has received the promised eternal life. Remember, the covenant was, if you obey me, you'll have life. If you, if you disobey me, you'll die. Adam disobeyed. He received death. Our bodies are connected to Adam's. They will die. Our souls are connected to Christ. He won the victory. He obeyed God perfectly. He received life. And as the federal head, his life is our life. In Christ, there is life and life abundant. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam broke. <laughs> Listen to this, because you're going to first think this is a contradiction of everything I've ever taught. You are saved by works. Just not yours. You're saved by the works of Christ. 
when God and His Holy Spirit causes you to believe, because you're saved by faith alone, right? When you believe, that's your part, when you believe the work that was required to enter life that was done by Christ is applied to you. The covenant of works fulfilled by Christ is the basis of your salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus' work that makes God's grace to you possible. Jesus' fulfillment of the covenant of works is why God could offer to Adam and to Eve and to you and to me a covenant of grace, a new covenant made possible by the blood of Christ. And so here's how we're closing. All that matters now then is this. Do you have faith in Christ? Has His victory been given to you? If not, go to Jesus in prayer and declare to Him your desire to be a part of His covenant, a part of those people who are saved. And leave this place trusting Him for salvation. Trust that He is wiser than you. And get into the Bible so He can teach you how to live. Get into a church where you can be faithfully taught how to walk with God. Be baptized. That's how you profess yourself, profess to God, profess to others that you want to be identified as one who is in the covenant. What is your standing with God this morning? Are you in the covenant of grace? Or do you continue to stand outside as an enemy of God, a rebel on your way to judgment? You are either going to heaven or to hell. Humanity chose hell in the garden. But God offers heaven to you through Jesus. Will you turn from your wicked ways and align yourself with God and be saved? Let's pray. I know we've talked about some heady stuff this morning. This was a lot of theology and abstract truth, but it is so important. And so I would call on each and every person now to examine their hearts and to ask, where do I stand? 